I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry of architecture is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome to Practice Disrupted. Hello, listeners. Hello, Janine. Hi, Evelyn. Hi, Disruptors. So I was very recently introduced to our next guest, Sharon Prince, CEO of Grace Farms, through a mutual friend of ours from ASLAP, who really thought Practice Disrupted would be a wonderful platform to share what they are doing with their Design for Freedom initiative. The initiative is taking a look at sustainability and equity, the two core focuses within the AIA strategic plan, by looking at really the entire life cycle of procurement and materials and specifications more holistically than I've seen any other group doing, including the labor that it takes to harvest and manufacture and deliver our building materials. This is an area that I feel large corporations get a lot of flack about. Now, Nike comes to mind immediately as well as others in the fashion industry, but one that relatively goes unnoticed until now within the building industry. And we know Sharon was with us in Chicago. She gave a presentation at A22 when AIA was last together um, as a large group. And so I know a lot of you may have heard the initial story about Grace Farms. And today we're going to go deeper and hear all about it and all of the education supporting the mission-driven work that they're doing. So we're very, very excited to have you, Sharon. Why don't you kick this conversation off by telling us a little bit about yourself? First of all, hello, Evelyn and Jen. It is so great to speak with you today as fellow and leading disruptors. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. I'm Sharon Prince. I'm founder and CEO of Grace Farms Foundation. And we are leading as an institution the Design for Freedom movement, which does need leading disruptors, as you, you talked about just a minute ago, this to create radical paradigm shift that where we're going to first illuminate, this is what we're doing now, and then to remove forced labor from our building materials supply chain. So we are connecting dots, surfacing facts, proposing strategies to hold leaders of the full ecosystem of the built environment accountable. So this podcast is right in my lane, and I'm (laughs) um, eager to, you know, to really engage your, your audience as well. I think our listeners would love to hear a little bit more about Grace Farms. Why has it taken on this call within the building industry specifically, and the kind of the evolution of that story from your lens? Unlike other projects that are built for existing institutions, the foundation was created when we opened Grace Farms in 2015. So this is just the opposite of the norm and quite aspirational, particularly risky since there's no pre-existing model. And the concept for Grace Farms started with this idea that space communicates, which an architect friend of mine shared with me about 15 years ago while working on my former business. So that led us to consider if space could communicate a set of values, could it draw a diverse community together locally and globally by creating a platform to advance good in the world. 
So could architecture be generative over hundreds of years? Like what could architecture do that other means and methods to, or, you know, ways to advance good in the world could do? So then, you know, then we started to think about what are the common denominators among us that would contribute to human flourishing? So the design of Grace Farms in the landscape are together helping to create a peaceful respite and foster this active community. It's quite intentional and fundamental to our interdisciplinary humanitarian mission where we're weaving five initiatives, nature, arts, justice, community, and faith, and now design for freedom. So our stake in the ground is to end modern-day slavery and gender-based violence and to create more grace and peace in our local and global communities. And I would say that your building is very beautiful. Like from an architectural standpoint, it is just, it is peaceful. It is calming. And I love hearing you talk about how you're connecting the values of your organization to your building in the, in the context of the site. We want to talk a little bit about the growth that your organization's gone through because it's, it's grown quite a bit. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about the trajectory of that growth? Yeah, so I think it's it's first important to start with like how how do you is first let's, let's go back to this. I think we should first note how important it is in when you're initializing starting an organization and a space. So and actually please stop for a minute. I'm gonna go back. I probably should describe I didn't even talk about Sana yet. So let me let me just that for a minute, okay? Um so Kazuyo Sejima and Rue Nishizawa of Sana enabled us to create a new type of public space. So a hopeful space to address pressing humanitarian issues where the architecture would become part of the landscape. And since you have, you have you've been to Grace Farms, right? Uh, the river building offers 360 degree views of the landscape in the changing seasons, which evoke new perspectives, evokes curiosity, and initializes an ambulatory experience that has both social and spiritual potential. And it was interesting because we asked them to create this porous membrane. That was back in 2010. And now the term is just porous. But back then, people are like, what is a porous membrane? What are you talking about? And they are, as you well know, that they are very, very deft at being able to create spaces where people can flow in and out of the porous architecture that can break down barriers between you know, people and sectors, nature, architecture, and, and what we ask for is a place that could create these new outcomes. So then in terms of how our, our organization has grown, I think it's important to start off with how you, uh, who you bring on board. So that would be you know, first, we couldn't have done what we've done without Sejima Nishizawa, having the right partners and also having a similar mindset and ethos. We've been committed to creating gender and racial equity with our teams. So that, that really did start with the design team, construction. It just carries through to our full team. Who, you have to have that kind of team who can actually create the three-dimensional expression of it. But also then when we started to create our own team to operate Grace Farms. So we have now this very entrepreneurial, nimble team with this like-minded ethos 
to build Grace Farms together. Chelsea Thatcher has been my partner in envisioning what can be as our creative director and chief advancement officer. And then now Sherry Sweeney, our COO, came on board right at the onset of the pandemic and has helped us to be this humanitarian hub during the pandemic, which I can describe later. It was pretty incredible to, you know, being nimble is part of what we do. But it, that was, that really was a, a, a really challenging time. And our team now has grown to nearly 100. And each person on our team now feel and are part of the Design for Freedom movement, are designed for, are part of how we welcome people, the work that we do. And, and thankfully people have, you, know, you don't know if people are going to come. Thankfully they have, locally and globally, and have had their own or collective experience. We've had hundreds of artists like Carrie Mae Weems, Alvin Ailey, Poet Laureate, Tracy K. Smith, Nonprofit organizations like the UN, including UN University, UN Women, government en entities, HM Homeland Security Investigations, State Department scholars. I mean, it just goes, you know, we just have a, this phenomenal group of people within the full ecosystem of the built environment and just, a, you know, just with humanity that have been adding to the DNA of Grace Farms. So, Grace Farms is bringing together this collective of people. So how how did it pivot during <laughs> the pandemic when it was much harder to bring people together to have those, the, the dialogue and discourse that you're seeking? So at the onset of the pandemic, when PPE was really scarce, even for frontline healthcare workers and food insecurity was on the rise, Grace Farms here, we pivoted our entire operation, we closed, and then kept our teams on in the commons to to prepare meals literally from day one and within our community, which is very hard, as you know, for even to keep staff on and the you know to, to prepare meals. And then 2020, we converted Grace Farms into this essential pace place of business. And by April 1st, we filled the life-saving N95 respirator gap for all of Connecticut and distributed is a little over 2 million PPE. It was really, as you know, um, harrowing. It was a round-the-clock effort. We were, you know, we were able to source, secure, and donate at, of those 2 million PPE, 500,000 N95s to all of the, you know, the local hospitals. And there's a whole community effort because we've been invested in supply chains, understanding them, invest in our community. And also because you just, the, the MO here is really we're just going to say yes, and then figure out how to do it. So it was on a Zoom call that I said, we're going to get these N95s for the state. And I actually did not know how long, I mean, how difficult that would be. And then everybody has to rally, which we did. So, um, it was a is really is an informative time too for how we reemerged in September this year, and Design for Freedom was part of that too. Even during that, during the crisis the last two years, we also formally launched Design for Freedom at the same time with the report it, in October of 2020. So we had we were working really um, quite quite urgently during COVID, and the pan well, we're still not out of it, but during the most pressing time. The interesting thing about Design for Freedom, like I said, is that it really goes into the labor that it takes to procure all of our materials. So when 
You know, and this is an area when you talk about sustainability, we always talk about savings, you know, reducing our carbon footprint. Were the architects you're working with, did they know of of these procurement policies? Like how did how did you go about discovering this particular um, issue within the building industry? Right. So I've been aware of the entropic, brutal human rights violation of modern slavery for about 20 years. And through our work since we opened, that was that commitment from, you know, from our opening to address it and our commitment to architecture. So through our work, convenings from, from when we opened, architecture and justice had been in proximity to each other at Grace Farms. So several years ago, I connected the dots that began with ethical transparency and conscious consumerism in food and clothing. Next I am, we are proposing that shelter also be accountable to its mammoth material supply chain. And the one thing to note is that all buildings, including Grace Farms, around the globe are built with materials that have a high risk of forced and child labor. So not one modern building can be certified without forced labor in its thousands of materials. And in fact, rarely a few of those materials. So this all, you know, this epiphany happened while I was on a national jury with the AIA in late 2017 to evaluate projects around the world. And one project was in a hot spot. It was a girls' school. And we were looking at the sustainability of the various buildings, but did not prioritize social sustainability, social equity. And so I asked the question whether the bricks for the school construction were made without forced labor, and I was met with silence. So I you know, quickly learned that while environmental sustainability had been prioritized, there was no discussion of the ethical inspection of the building material supply chain. You know, once I realized it, once you know, you can't unknow it. So I quickly went to everyone that... I had worked with on Grace Farms. I went quickly to the AIA president to inform them, uh, created and started to create a working group with the late and incredible William Menking, Bill Menking, from and founder of the Architects newspaper. And he agreed that, you know, and astonished himself that there had been, you know, there, there's been a labor transparency within this, you know, the largest industrialized sector in the world that is also at the highest risk of forced and child labor. That is shocking. And I don't think it's something that is discussed enough in architecture firms or even in the idea of specking materials. Like we talk a lot about selection of materials that are regional to reduce the carbon footprint of transporting those materials, but the idea of tracing it back and following the supply chain back to the origin of the material to understand how it is acquired or created. Can you give us a couple of other materials that come to mind in addition to brick uh, as a material that's high risk for this? Well, what happened at the very beginning is that there was no list of material. Not only is there labor transparency passes, but there's very little data point that had been brought together. So when we created the report, and it was within, we've also established the working group that started with a dozen of us is now 80 within the full ecosystem of the built environment. That enables us to have validity and credibility to understand, you know, to really pull all the pieces together. And we identified 12 materials that include all the basic materials of a building, whether it be timber, textiles, stone, 
polysilicon that go into our solar panels. We talk more in depth about those in our newly released Design for Freedom Toolkit. These are all online, open source, and it's, it's super important to understand that literally no one acknowledged this early on. Um, and so the work that needs to be done is voluminous. We have, a, but we are literally making progress right now. And what's exciting about this conversation is those that are listening now know. Once you know, you cannot unknow it. And we do have agency. So we want to first expand the definition of sustainability. So when we say sustainability, it needs to include ethical and social sustainability. And they, you know, this is how repair begins, how we can really imagine and create a more humane future through car architecture. How often are you able to do what you do and have this kind of humanitarian impact? So slavery is the most extreme form of inequity. And there is this extreme violation of human dignity, safety, and welfare. It proliferates today without any accountability. So design for freedom is a call to action, to repair, to create an ethics-based built environment, you know, to connect the operations to people and materiality. And what's the, the main thing people can do is really act, is what initialized the whole movement is inquire. Is your building ethically sourced and sustainably designed? Right now we don't know. And there's a starting, you know, starting blind spot right now. And we need to do that particularly even with a sustainable lens. Because the embedded, you know, we're looking at embedded carbon, but we're not, at the same time, we could be and should be adding labor inputs so that we're also acknowledging the embedded suffering that are, is built into our construction. I would imagine that our listeners can hear your passion and enthusiasm in your voice. I mean, I'm definitely, I'm definitely hearing it. You, this is an area that you've been, um, you know, forced labor is something that you've been looking at for over 20, over two decades now. What was your interest, particularly in space and architecture? Because you don't have an architecture background. So, so make that connection for us. I believe in the power of, of more, of, of having us all engage in a... It, to me, is the most egregious violation of, of social inequities that has been going on and on for so, so little and such a weak response. So it can only happen. I just it's, it's it's very clear to me that architecture itself, with the sheer weight of it, the number of people that are involved in a project, that really has the rare opportunity to actually reduce and hopefully and reduce disrupt so we're talking about modern day slavery unlike any other avenue. It's really interesting because the green building movement, you know, we have that as a muscle memory within the building industry. We've seen how, what that has produced, right? In terms of our environmental consciousness of what we of what and how we build. Uh, still a long way to go, but the ability now to shift the marketplace towards ethical suppliers and manufacturers, extractors, transporters is significant. And, and we see coupled with laws that are emerging. So I can give you examples of how that's happening right now. Right at the 
at the nexus of, sust- of sustainability, environmental sustainability, and this effort to of design for freedom. Because solar panels are something that is a, is a means and method for addressing the climate crisis, and yet it's being subsidized by forced and child labor at the same time. What's happened is that we have the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act that's gone into effect in June that disallows any entry of any products made within the Uyghur region to come into the United States. And so just a few weeks ago, three gigawatts, which would be about one-sixth of the anticipated installation of solar panels, was seized at the border. So the disruption within the solar industry is happening. I talked about this last year, not knowing that the Uyghur Forced Air Protection Act would come into effect or even be proposed. But what I did know is that we also have the Trade Facilitation and Enforcement Act that most people do not know about, which does require verification of all materials that are brought into the United States to have fair labor. And what that means is that if you're asked at the border for that verification, you need to produce it. And given that there's there's a lack of capacity to test every firm documentation on every shipment, it's it's not there's hasn't been as much of a um, enforcement capacity to do so. However, with the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act, there is is the difference is that you have to prove that fair labor documentation at the border. Grace Farms was founded on this idea of space. Where is Grace Farms located? And if I want to hold an event at Grace Farms to help with this dialogue, how do I do that? Okay, so we're about an hour north of New York City in New Canaan, Connecticut. And we are free and open to the public. We do hold you know, different types of events that have full range. and we But we do this all in partnership. So we're not a place that rents it out for other folks. We partner with many organizations. And for you, you disruptors, we can, there's plenty to, <laughs> um, you know, to come and attend to be a part of and to help shape, actually. So we have a Design for Freedom Summit now that we just had initialized our, you had our first inaugural summit in March. And we're going to hold our second this coming Mar- March, 2023, the 30th. We have both the Earth Equity and Landscape Forum that in, introduces both, you know, talks about both the importance of ethically and sustainably maintaining our landscapes, as well as the products and materials we put into our landscapes. And that forum will be in May. And then we have every day when you come to Grace Farms, everyone, the public, this is the beauty of it, we have the public here a big part of Design for Freedom to you know, really initialize the demand. But also, right. uh, yes, that's a big part of it. We have programs every day, pop-up programs uh, that people can choose to be a part of. There's a library. We have a library where we have you know, plenty of books, but we also have the report toolkit that everyone can use within this industry, that's the main, the, the, the one of the very easy things and first things to do is to just to download that, to download it. Exactly. And the designforfreedom.org website has that as well and use it. So the very easy thing to do too, use the toolkit, but also start to ask 
your suppliers when you're they're meeting with you to give you the you know to give the certifications that they're using that are relevant to design for freedom that have third-party audited labor requirements and we list those in the toolkit too so they you know you can cross-check those and to use material circularity because that truncates the supply chain at that we're at upstream where it's at the highest risk of exploitation and there is a we have a newsletter it's like a separate newsletter <laughs> and there's like lots of ways but the, the the main thing is that everyone can really investigate one material one chair one item and that will mean a lot we've already seen that happen when conversations start to ensue that starts to trigger a um, a mind and understand this is important and everyone on this call has that agency which is really important and exciting so if i'm a designer or an architect in my office right now listening to this podcast thinking about wow i need to take action on this and i'm going to go download the toolkit where do they start with actually applying it so you're i'm hearing you say that they can go research a material. So let's say their project has um, a high use of brick in it as a key material. Is it that you all are offering a database they can look to, or is it that they can also be part of the research towards finding solutions? Yes, these are early days, so research is important. But we do have, we've listed those 12 materials, and you'll learn about the hotspots, what those materials, like composites are made of, uh, let's say with timber, that FSC certified wood that you might already put into a project to achieve sustainable goals, actually also just added core labor requirements. So now you can even propose, it's actually beneficial to know which of the certifications also add ethically ethically sourced materials because you can let your clients know or your teams know that they can invest in these sustainable products and also achieve design for freedom principles at the same time. In the in the toolkit, there's also letters that you can send out to suppliers. There is a questionnaire. So you're no one's alone on this. They're all together on it. And um, the material tracking spreadsheet is available downloadable specifications that were created with Gensler, um, Bill Dubois, who's the construction specifier there, Hayslade and others that were part of a sub-team. Those could be added to your specs. It's a very similar process that you might be already undertaking for other cert, you know, uh, environmental certifications. So again, we don't want to create a separate lane for Design for Freedom. It's additive to all the sustainable means and methods at this time. Yeah, this is something I, I just thought about it. I was like, this is this is a toolkit that I need to get in front of the Roost team at Salesforce, actually, because we just made sustainability one of our core values at Salesforce. So I should hope that ex- extends equity as well. So we'll put all of the links that you've been talking about down in our show notes. So it's very easy for everyone to find. We do have some younger listeners that are, you know, looking to be practice disruptors as they grow into leadership. So are there other ways that are your younger listeners, those that I would say maybe even struggle with managing up can can contribute to the conversation uh, and bring it forward to their leadership? 
I love this question so much because we've been, I've been talking now and guest lecturing in many universities of over a dozen. And it's one of my favorite things because as a new architect design professional, it takes years in architecture, I know that, to be able to have an immediate impact, let's say. This, it, by, no, by really investing time to understand design for freedom and the capacity that you might have in an organization, you're bringing something to the table that the organization most likely has not been informed about. And, and this is something that reduces business risk. It reduces legal risk. It reduces um, reputational risk by instituting into an, an organization and increases humanitarian value. It's, it's just, it's, it's really, a, I, I believe, a very strong gift to any institution you might bring it to, you know, bring this to, and you have agency. So it's not, what's interesting too, is if you're an architect, you have the responsibility to uphold the, you know, many of the, the ethical pledges you're already committed to. And this is one that's just, has not been recognized, but really folds into those lanes. And I have not, encountered anyone of uh, who said that you know, have, have, would ignore it again might try to struggle with how to to integrate this into operations but as a as a young professional it's a it's really something that I hope and have seen people start to do their own research um, be able to bring to organizations themselves we're also putting into place within our, I mean, I think it's such as the universities and young professionals right now, to me, are the ones who are going to be able to carry this forward as we're developing new technologies and also to make this a non-negotiable. It's just, you know, it's, it's really, a, all you young professionals are such an important part of Design for Freedom as a movement. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. I was going to ask about the pilot projects that you guys are running right now and, and what those are and what they look like and what stage of the process they're at. So pilot projects are the next step in the Design for Freedom movement. Nothing replaces doing the work in real time. So the goal of the pilot project is to raise awareness, demonstrate Design for Freedom principles in action, and then add to the body of industry data. So we've... Um, We've, we have now five international projects, a couple in the United States, and then also two, so one in um, London, the Serpentine Pavilion, that opened in June. We're going to be hold, we held a convening also on June 12th there to, on, on the UN World Day Against Child Labor and help to, really help to activate a number of the design community and activists and so forth in London. We're going to hold another ethical action community meeting on September 29th there. So you can see that we're looking for pilot projects that are publicly available, publicly open. Probably a million will see all these pilot projects within the next year. And then also add to the capacity to inform, you know, have awareness opportunities, but also start to activate teams. So the New Canaan Library, which is a local one right here in New Canaan, it came on board, has been designed by Centerbrook Architects, but also 
constructed by Turner. Now Turner is a committed partner. Incredible, right? They have 10% of the industry and they're committed to really put into practice the design for freedom principles. And there's more to talk about that in the future. So it's not just one product, you know, pilot projects have a cascading effect. Now when Turner has a working group working on it and Arab, you know, might have a working group on it. And then, you know, their own, when they're initializing these responses themselves by knowing how important it is and the capacity they have. So the projects that are in India have, and I've been just, I was just in India last, a couple months ago, and there's more emerging there where there's, it's a pretty bold move and for industrialists that are, so, so we have, that are there in the country as owners to be committed to design for freedom. And they're doing it with fervency. It's, it's, you know, it takes these early, early adopters takes boldness for people to move forward with this. And there's more to come, which is exciting. And can I just, the pilot project outcomes already. So each of the pilot projects and when it's completed, has a brief attached to it that would be open source as well. So if you go online right now, you'll see a very trim, but it's it's a overview of the Serpentine Pavilion's um, examination of their supply chain. You'll see 16 products that ex- examined the country of origin, the certif- certifications that were used, starting to build that. We're not going to, at this point, have a design for freedom database. We want to be able to, what we're doing is adding design for freedom filters with other partners like Mindful Materials, Material Bank, and others so that it doesn't become onerous also to practitioners that already have so many responsibilities in terms of sustainability. So that is also another step is to formalize those, those partnerships and add the filters, which is emerging right now. Sustained Chain is another one. The U.S. Sustained Chain is a data platform that will enable all of those on this call and so forth in the future. We're announcing that soon, how we're activating that. So there's a platform for everyone to engage with. So it's creating you know, other avenues where that exist and then add design for freedom to them. I thought we could talk a little bit about the supply chain itself. And you mentioned people earlier and just taking that idea all the way back to the source, because I'm not sure everyone of our listeners will understand the concept of supply chain. There is so much emphasis on the design part where you pick the material or you pick the product and you select it. But let's actually walk it back and talk about what supply chain is. Can you describe that for us and take it down to the um, original source? First, I think it's important to describe forced labor within construction. There's two halves of the equation. One is on-site labor that most people are aware of. That you need, you know, that's why there's unions and oversight on-site. The other half of the equation is material procurement, and that is the half that has been ignored. So, material procurement. Is includes the materials at extraction, at extraction level, which is the term is upstream from where you are from the from the job site. So if you even more simply look at it like this, you have the construction site. We're looking to move the perimeter beyond the construction site that goes right to the level of extraction. 
which would be at the forests, in the mines, and um, agriculturally, let's say for cotton and other um, textiles. So that's the level of extraction. And that is where they're, where there's the highest risk of forced and child labor. And the reason for that is there are hazardous conditions there at those sites. And there is, in some of the hotspot areas, lack of oversight. Then it starts to also, when you start within the construction sector, have a number of brokers, subcontractors. It's a very disaggregated um, industry. And so the transparency from that extraction level to the job site is opaque. The From extraction upstream, then you need to transport it. So from harvest or mining, then you need to transport it. That's where forced labor and child forced labor can still exist. And then transport it. And then you might be having to smelt it, manufacture it, and then transport it again. And it, again, moves throughout the global marketplace. And therefore, then it, then it ends up within the manufacturing with other materials. So there's commingling of materials that make it difficult also to identify the materials if they've never been prioritized to inspect those materials. So they're commingled. And then they end up in other composite, like let's say HVAC systems and lighting, very difficult, right? And then they end up at your job site. So you can see that there is a, it's a long supply chain disaggregated. And it's also part of that supply chain that's important to note is that when you design a building, you are, you actually do have a through line to those materials. Because if you are asking for a certain type of material, they might only come from a certain place. Right now, if you're asking for a solar panel, it's going to, the polysilicon, 85% of it comes from China and 45%, 50% from the Uyghur region. And, you know, there's the, the rare woods, you know, they, they, where do they come from? They come from a lot of those, again, that be Peru, Brazil, and so forth. And then you look for those areas where there's, a, then in those areas, there might be a lack of oversight, even though there's laws that exist. That's the other thing that's really surprising is there's, Within the whole, with every country, there's laws that exist against slavery. And yet it goes that with, it still continues with quite often with impunity. So that's the supply chain. The other thing that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting is the idea of the third party reviewer. Um, I think it's really smart that you're getting the construction industry involved. So having a partner like Turner, when they start to identify the different providers of these materials that that qualify, then they grow this list and knowledge of uh, sources that they, they can return to when they're they're putting this into the the building itself. But the idea of a third party reviewer, tell us more about that. That sounds really intriguing. Yeah. So that maybe I should define what that is. A third party labor auditor is a is different than Turner. So third party auditing means that you cannot audit the materials for forced and child labor yourself. You have to hire an auditor who goes through a process to determine whether passports were withheld, where there are brokers involved to um, ensure that there is payment on time to workers paid a fair wage. Those are separate companies that do that inspection that are not related to the manufacturer. Basically, we're, we're aiming to shift the largest industrial sector in the world 
towards ethical fair labor sourcing. And we're going to continue to figure out how to do that and leverage all of our capacity. That's, that's the aim and get it onto the agenda for, of the eighth. Actually want to get design for freedom on the ACE agenda. To me, it's, you're right. Once you know it and you see it, you could, no, nobody can ignore this, um, especially architects who always want to do good by their projects and their clients and their people. So I think once more architects are educated on this, I think you're going to have a really strong group of advocates. And so we're very honored to help you spread the word on this mission and just want to say thank you for joining us today. Hi, Disruptors. If you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast. Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is at practiceofarch. That's at practice of A-R-C-H. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.